Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic startups. I'm your host, Greg Kubin, alongside Matthias Serebrinski. We're partners at Symed Ventures, a fund investing in psychedelic medicine and mental health. In today's episode, we chat with a clinic at the frontier of mental health. Scenic City Neurotherapy, based in Chattanooga, Tennessee, is one of the first clinics that offers a treatment that pairs ketamine with transcranial magnetic stimulation, also called TMS. Its founder, Charles Miller, says that so far, roughly 90% of his patients being given ketamine and TMS report a complete remission of depressive symptoms after five days of treatment. Let's break down how the protocol works. The first part involves TMS, which is a non-invasive procedure that sends electric currents to targeted regions in the brain. So for example, it can target regions associated with depression. TMS is FDA approved for conditions like major depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. In addition to TMS, Scenic City's protocol also includes two sessions of IV ketamine infusion, which according to Miller, enhances communication within the brain. And when combined with psychotherapy, patients are seeing transformative results. There's very little data about the combination of TMS with ketamine, making this conversation quite interesting as we hear from one of the few practitioners offering this treatment. Matthias is hosting this one, so you won't hear from me in this interview. With that, now to the episode with Charles Miller and Scenic City Neurotherapy. Charles, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Let's start by talking about your path. How did you end up having a frontier mental health clinic? Well, it wasn't on purpose. If you'd have told me when I first started my pathway down towards anesthesia, I, have, I came up the nursing pathway. I'm a certified registered nurse anesthetist, and I have been in the field for several years. I love anesthesia. I love everything about the way the body responds, the perfection that is required in this field to keep people safe and to keep people alive through difficult procedures. But one of the things that anesthesia is not famous for is our psychosocial understanding of things. I looked at this specifically ketamine infusion therapy from a pain perspective initially. It has a powerful mental health component, but it does so many things. And one of the things that initially drew me into this field was using it to help people manage chronic pain conditions in a non-opioid, non-narcotic fashion. Opioid therapies have been around for a long time now, and they've done quite a bit of damage. Even patients that are in chronic pain who are on chronic opioid therapy are not terribly happy with their process. And so finding a better way is something that we're always looking for in medicine. And so looking at some old anesthetics like ketamine, lidocaine, magnesium, steroidals, non-steroidals was interesting. So I came into this field looking into trying to help people from a pain perspective. And I had to explore the mental health component because even with chronic pain, mental health components is a large piece. And the more that I looked into it, the more I understood it, you know, I read the science, the same science that everybody else read, the initial studies that Yale did and Johns Hopkins and Stanford and Oxford, they've all put out these studies that are very clear, but it almost, it almost sounded too good to be true. And so when I was looking at the mental health component, when I was looking at doing this about five years into my independent practice, I went to a clinic, the Memphis Ketamine Center, and spent some time with them. I was in grad school with the owner of that clinic. She let me see it for real. Those of us that have worked in this space for some time, I think we almost can take for granted how great this can be. But 
I was like, surely it's not as good as what they say. And it absolutely was. It's what we're able to help patients get through and get to the other side of is it's hard to beat. And so my clinic here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Scenic City Neurotherapy, we use ketamine infusion therapy. We do transcranial magnetic stimulation. We use these therapies to help people improve their quality of life. And that's it's I can't even imagine going back to the classic OR anesthesia at this point. So you said that we may take for granted how great it can be. So how great can it be? So with my consultations with each patient, my goal is primarily education. My goal is a threefold, help them understand what this is, what this isn't, and what's expected of them. Once they have adequate expectations, that's a huge piece of the puzzle. And so what it can be, it doesn't give patients anything they didn't have before. It helps them access what's already there. It helps them be the best versions of themselves. It returns their ability to be present in the moment so they can enjoy what's happening now rather than over-focusing on what happened before or fear of things to come. It's important because if someone doesn't feel present, which is what our primary mood disorders steal from us, depression, anxiety, PTSD, bipolar disorder, OCD, and all of their subtypes, they steal away the moment. The patient is never able to be present and enjoy what's happening now. So being able to give that back to people, help them get back to a point to where they're able to feel not good, but feel things in the correct way, meaning that they get to feel their environment the way it actually is. And then if that doesn't feel good, then they work to optimize their environment. It's a, it's a component to mental health that we haven't been able to address. I think our audience may be familiar with ketamine therapy. We had a, a couple therapists and practitioners on the show that talked about that. So you talked about a modality that I think it may be the first time that many people hear about, transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS. So can you talk a little bit more about what TMS is and how does it work? Yeah, we stimulate specifically the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is one of the areas responsible for how we perceive stimuli coming in. So when, you know, everything we touch, everything we hear, everything we taste, see, feel, ends up in the brain to be processed in specifically the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. There's a fantastic article on ketamine talking about the global optimization effect. And what that means is that ketamine stimulates a global optimization, enhanced communication, not just in the frontal lobe or the perceived areas of the brain. So not just from a feelings perspective, it wakes up areas of the brain that are not so perceived, that fall more under the subconscious or autonomic control. We've seen everything from balance improve after ketamine infusion therapy to urinary sphincter tone return to people who had urinary incontinence. It optimizes the way the brain communicates with itself and the body, but it does it in a very global way. But when we're focusing on major depressive disorder or chronic anxiety or a combination of the two, specifically those two disorders respond very well to transcranial magnetic stimulation because it's about how we're perceiving stimuli, meaning that we're good th when good things happen, they're not feeling the good. Oftentimes, it even just equates to an emotional numbing. And so what we do is we trigger that same optimization process, but rather than doing it with a chemical catalyst like ketamine, 
we're using a mechanical catalyst or electromagnetic stimulation. It's not like ECT. We're not shocking the brain. I know that electric side of it can, might give the wrong idea. It's more like a penetrating static electricity that irritates specifically the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. We target it with some three-dimensional mapping. We use functional MRI technology, depending on which machine you have, to get the most accurate targeting. And we target specifically that area to stimulate neuronal regrowth in excess just right there. And so whereas where ketamine gives kind of a global approach, TMS is a focused approach, a targeted approach, specifically where the brain's perceiving and processing information. And I understand one is global and the other one's local, but in terms of mechanism of action, is it similar? And the follow-up question, is it related to promoting neuroplasticity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the neurogenesis that occurs in response to ketamine administration occurs when changing of the brain's baseline by blocking the NMDA receptors with ketamine increases the glutamate, which triggers the AMPA receptors. It's this whole pathway, this series of events that triggers the brain to protect itself. Ketamine blocks, or antagonizes, a receptor found in neurons called NMDA. When the NMDA receptor is blocked, it releases glutamate, a neurotransmitter. Glutamate plays a key role in strengthening neurons and the connections or synapses between neurons. Some researchers hypothesize that a dysfunctional glutamate system is associated with depression. The brain doesn't know that it's receiving an anesthetic, and so the brain will flood itself with several different neuroprotective proteins. Now, these proteins are neuroprotective when they release, but when you sleep, they become neuroregenerative. There's a process that occurs when we sleep after a release of this protein called dendritic arborization. Now, dendrites are the branches that come off of the brain cells that connect brain cell A to brain cell B. They're like arms that reach out and touch each other. Arborization means like, like Arbor Day, like branching, like trees. And so it helps increase the brain's ability to communicate with itself. So you're not less sensitive to stimuli. We're not actually taking away depression. We're actually correcting the way the brain processes stimuli. Good things feel good. Bad things will feel bad. Small things cause small anxieties. Big things cause bigger anxieties. It's not about feeling good all the time. We don't want you just smiling and walking through a war zone. That's not an appropriate way to feel either. We want you to feel things correctly, and then you optimize your environment from that point forward. And that's what we see from a ketamine perspective. It releases this protein. Well, with TMS, we irritate a specific area of the brain, and the brain's response is similar, but just in that targeted area. So it releases neuroprotective proteins in that area that actually rebuild that specific area, causing neuroplasticity. There's a couple of other mechanisms of action that are theorized, but it's the end result's the same, and it's based off of a very similar mechanism of action as ketamine infusion. This is an exciting place because it shows us, for the first time ever, we're able to deal with the underlying component that is a mood disorder. Our mood disorders, if we look at them, we, we call them major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. That'd be like calling a stomach tumor a abdominal pain disorder. We name disorders based off of symptomologies, not the underlying disease. When we understand what is underlying, what the issue is, then we can actually deal with the underlying problem. Like depression is not the disease itself. Depression's a symptom of an underlying neuronal communication issue. When we optimize the way the brain cells communicate, we feel things the way we're supposed to feel them. 
physical wear and tear on the brain from stressors, from periods of heightened stress, traumas, long periods of depression, they take their toll and there's an actual physiologic issue that develops. And that's what we're correcting with these two therapies. Mm -hmm. You touched on something that I'm very curious and passionate about, which is precision psychiatry. And I literally use the same example of a tumor. Tumors were diagnosed let's say 20 years ago, where it was literally, as you said, a stomach cancer. And today we're focused on what is the mutation pattern? What is the biology? What is the genotype? What is the phenotype of that cancer? And mm -hmm. I, I'm excited about the day that we can have the same approach to mental health disorders, where we don't talk about a disease based on the symptoms, but based on the underlying biology of the disease. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm trying to hold two different thoughts in my head. One is related to the fact that these diseases have a physiological component. And then maybe an alternative view, which could be complementary to that one, mm -hmm. is that these diseases are also caused by a traumatic event or some adverse event in life. And by working through what happened and being able to process those unresolved emotions, we can actually find healing. So how do you make sense of those two different paradigms, so to speak? Well, they're both important to look at. The psychological work, the actual thought processes, the counseling portion or the therapy portion, whether it be working with a psychologist, LCSW, LPC, psychiatrist, those are the people that really work that piece. And we work closely with their mental health providers. We have a psychiatrist that we work closely with for our TMS program. And we're actually next door to a mental health facility and we share a pathway between our offices. My focus is very heavily from the physiology. And you'll hear that in the way I explain things. The psychological component, the counseling portion, is the other half of the process. So think of it like physical therapy after a knee replacement. The knee replacement fixes the anatomy. Does that mean the patient's ready to get up and start running? No, they have to rebuild. They have to correct the actual range of motion and muscle and rebuild the muscle mass and, and learn how to use this new knee in their new existence. And so the patient has to grow and rebuild essentially. And without that, they don't get any real lasting benefit. All the new neuronal regrowth, the neuroplasticity we create is we don't do any work afterwards. It all just goes to reinforce the old way of doing things. What I say to all my therapists, my counselors, the people out there really working day to day, talking these patients through difficult times, they're the one piece that has consistently worked always. They are the most important piece of our mental health process because they're the ones that truly carry the patient forward. It's helping the patient understand their reality correctly, learning how to feel things correctly, building coping mechanisms. And so rebuilding takes time. We have to replace unhealthy outlets. And that's the groundwork that's laid before and after these neuroregenerative processes we do. You also mentioned NMDA and glutamate, which are related to ketamine. For mm -hmm. all the listeners, we had an episode where my co-host, Greg, went into a ketamine clinic. That's the first episode. So if you want to learn more about what NMDA receptors are and what a glutamate is, which I remember... I guess on the show, he said that glutamate is like miracle growth for your brain. I, <laughs> I found that analogy interesting. So I realized we actually didn't discuss what happens during a TMS session. Because I'm guessing people may be scratching their heads like, what the hell is a TMS session? So can you share a little bit more? Oh, goodness. Google's probably your best way to look. You can see the machine. It looks like a dentist chair. 
At least ours does. I know they've got some that are far more compact. And if I could show you video, I would. I know we're on a podcast, so you have to use your imaginations here. But it's, it's a large machine. Ours is called a MagStem. We have the MagStem Horizon, and it uses three-dimensional technology to map. And it's we put this patient in this big dentist chair, and it kind of reclines just like a dentist chair would. And then they get the patient in the optimal position for treatment. And then they take this little constellation, and unless you've actually been part of a minimally invasive spine surgery, it's the same technology they use to do surgery with these tiny cuts, like microdiscectomies, things like that. So they're able to do this minimally invasive approach. It allows us to see inside the body without actually seeing inside the body. But it's able, it helps us target exactly where the treatment spot is in a more effective way. So we take this little constellation and stick it to your forehead. And then we have this computerized eye that when then we target off of the nasion and the tragus on either side of the head, which is, this is the nasion right here above the nose. The tragus is that little, little flap in front of your ear. And we use your orientation of your head and we save that in the computer as your targeted site. It sends hundreds of pulses over the entire day, but we do, it's a 10-minute session for the ST protocol. It'll be 10 minutes of what we call theta burst stimulation, which is just a very rapid stimulation of TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And we use it for 10 minutes each hour for 10 hours a day. It's one of the areas we struggle too is because we can only treat one patient or potentially two but we find it easier just to stick with one patient per week. It does limit our machine's ability to make money, but we also find that it's so worth it for the patients that go through the process. Our clinic has been very blessed. We've been very successful, and so we find we don't have to look at the bottom line on how we run our business. We're able to do scholarship programs. We've been able to do in-house financing for patients that need to do that, that that upfront cost is just too much. Let's get technical for a few minutes. What does it mean to irritate the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex? Is that related to upregulating, downregulating, exciting a part of the brain? And why would something improve by doing that? Well, just like every system of the body, we so often look at the brain like it's something different, something that's not a piece of us. Like we have our brain and then there's the rest of us. But the brain functions very similarly to almost everything in our bodies. So take the heart, for example. Should your SA node, which sends the electrical signal that causes the heart to beat, should that fail, then the AV node is the backup system and it, start, and it will immediately pick up and take over. It's not as good as the SA node, but it, it will keep you alive. We have redundancies built into our bodies. Our body protects itself. Our body adapts and it will adapt to environments that are not conducive with good mental health. Now, your brain secretes these neuroregenerative proteins every night when we sleep. BDNF, GSK3B, multiple lesser proteins. So as we learn, as we think, as we stress, as we work, the brain will actually turn off and create small lesions. They're just areas that aren't communicating well. Most people are scared of the word lesion. It means a lysed neuronal synapse. It means it's not communicating. So the brain actually deliberately creates these lesions around areas where heightened stress has occurred. And then when we sleep at night, the brain will secrete small amounts of BDNF, the same protein I discussed with ketamine and TMS, GSK3B. These, these proteins actually rebuild the area, creating new connections. It's the reason why sleeping on a big decision is a good idea. We stress about it today. We sleep, we wake up, and the answer just comes to us. Why does it come to us? It's because the brain has actually processed it from multiple angles 
and created new connections. And that's how we learn. That's how we grow. It's how we evolve and change over the lifespan. The person we are today is not the person we're going to be five years from now. Just our life experiences will change us. And it's how our brain is malleable over the lifespan. I don't know if you're part of that generation where they told you that once you use up your brain cells, they're all gone. I think it was to scare us when we were kids to keep us from doing something stupid, but that's not true. The brain is constantly remodeling and rebuilding, just like the rest of us. So what we do is we use the brain's natural protective mechanism to self-correct and create an environment to where we are able to correct multiple lesions at a time. And that's because the relationship between neuronal lesions that develop during traumatic experiences, and there's a lot of research on this specifically in the case of PTSD, like wartime PTSD, with our veterans, they have these large, dark lesions that develop in response to the trauma. It's not an abstract thing. You look at brain imaging, you look at an MRI, and you can actually tell how that brain is physiologically different. Mm -hmm. It is. It's an actual mappable, measurable issue. I think that is, and I think that should be something we should all stop and think about because this shows us that mental health disorders are physiologic in nature, more related to that of a broken bone than they are to an emotional weakness or a psychological frailty. I think that's that's the stigma talking. When we go through traumas, people come along who aren't struggling and, and they tell these people who are, like, can't you just try to feel better? Can't you just not think of that? Can't you just move past it? That's like asking someone with a broken leg to run a marathon. This is an actual physical barrier. And when we correct the underlying neuronal communication issue, the patient still has to do the work. I mean, it's not a magic fix. There's no such thing as magic as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm very level-headed about that. But I, I love this because this is science. This is peer-reviewed. This is reproducible. Mm -hmm. This is mappable, measurable change. Mm -hmm. And the neuroregenerative response that we see is a larger scale of what happens when we sleep at night than the brain's natural ability to regenerate. And we use the brain's natural process And we trigger that through very unnatural means, a very unnatural medication like ketamine or very unnatural stimulation like with TMS. But it doesn't leave residual damage. We talked about ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. It has a very similar function to ketamine infusion therapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation. But what they do with that is that we shock the brain, which causes the brain to have a, a, a controlled seizure. Now, that's the desired effect, we want that to occur because micro damage occurs. And anytime there's any change in baseline or trauma to the brain, the brain will also flood itself with the same proteins. The same response we see with ketamine is the same response we see with ECT. It's just with ketamine, we're blocking receptors and then the, the anesthetic wears off with no long-term residual negative effect. But with ECT, we're causing very, very, very small amounts of damage, like a pruning effect. It's like cutting back a tree so it'll grow more. It's like cutting your hair so it'll grow longer. Now, some people report no real negatives long-term with ECT. Others lose memories, have cognitive deficits, and the more you do it, the more pruning you have, the more likely you are to lose something. And so since we have these newer neuroregenerative therapies that trigger a similar protein response and a similar antidepressant effect as ECT does, and the fact that we still practice ECT on a regular basis, it leads to some questions. Why would we still do this when this over here does the same thing without causing damage? And that's something that providers need to ask themselves. I think that a lot of people think they understand what ketamine infusion is because it so often gets lumped in as like a psychedelic type therapy. I think the hard science people like myself initially look at it and just write it off. 
And I, I think that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. I think this is something that needs to be looked at. And that's why we do a lot of education here. We do about 100 ketamine infusions a week. We do about 50 TMS sessions a week. And so we have an open door policy with anybody that wants to come here and actually see what this is for real. Come behind the scenes. We have medical providers from all specialties, everything from therapists to psychiatrists, internal medicine doctors to anesthesia professionals. And it's important that they understand this because we find that the only way to combat this stigma surrounding ketamine infusion therapy is education. Mm -hmm. That's all stigma. Everyone fears what they don't understand. I have a friend of mine, he actually has a doctorate in Essentially, I I don't know what the actual doctorate's in, but it's essentially rattlesnakes, North American rattlesnakes. And when we were out hiking as a group with a whole bunch of us, he walks over to the side of the trail and reaches down and picks up a rattlesnake with his bare hand, no glove, just grabs it by the back of the neck and holds it up. And I'm halfway back down the trail (laughs) because I don't have his understanding. His knowledge removed the fear. His knowledge removed any potential illegitimate fear he might have, and he knows how to handle and move through it. And where me, on the other hand, I still get chills telling the story. It's something I don't understand, and so I have a fear. Yeah. And so it's the same thing with these types of therapies. It's the the fear or the stigma that comes with them is usually associated to a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about the patient journey. Who is this treatment right for and who isn't? The combination of the two, we talked about how the global effect of ketamine. Ketamine stimulates that neuroregenerative response in a very broad spectrum way, all over the brain. Ketamine infusion is is used widely for multiple mood disorders. But what are we essentially doing? We're stimulating neuronal regrowth, enhancing the way the brain communicates. Let's talk about this in the use with Alzheimer's and dementia, stroke recovery, traumatic brain injuries. We even have used it and very successfully with patients that struggle with post-acute coronavirus syndrome, the brain fog. The neuronal, le- the rapid lesion creation that occurs to hyperinflammation after a COVID infection. Long COVID, basically. Yeah, what people are calling long COVID, it's like they just can't think. And the reason is, is because the inflammatory response, the, the brain gets inflamed. And rather than allowing the tissue to become inflamed, it removes blood flow by decreasing activity and creating a lesion. The protective mechanism kicks in and you create lesions rapidly. So you'll see people start to manifest cognitive deficits. You'll see them start to manifest new onset anxiety or depressive disorders. Because that is the actual underlying issue that causes these primary mood disorders is these lesions and where they're located in the brain and how they manifest for each individual. And using ketamine to wake up the brain and keep it functioning optimally is essentially brain optimization rather than, say, an antidepressive treatment. I tell my patients, I said, don't think of this as correcting depression or correcting anxiety. We're not trying to block symptoms. This isn't symptom management. This is an underlying correction of the inappropriate neuronal communication. That's where the success occurs. But with TMS now, on the other hand, we target the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So we stimulate a very similar response that the ketamine does, but we do it more aggressively and more focused. And so think of what combining these two would be. We get the global effects of ketamine infusion. We get the targeted, localized, focused effects of TMS. And so you're able to help somebody who has primary depression with a side of anxiety But you're also able to help them address other things like PTSD, bipolar disorder responds very well to this. Not so much. It doesn't bring the emotions up or pull things down. It helps with conscious psychological regulation of emotion. 
It helps put the patient in control of what they feel, not just how much they feel, but what feelings they feel in the moment. That's part of being present. They can exercise that control just a little better. Going back to the protocol, I'm curious if people can do these treatments while they're on SSRIs. Absolutely. They can even work synergistically to a point. There was an umbrella study that was released just a few weeks back, but it's something that we've known for some time. It's that this idea of the serotonin hypothesis, chemical imbalance theory, it doesn't hold as much weight as we thought. And the problem with that is, is that all of our antidepressant treatments are based off of this overall concept that we're controlling neurotransmitters to elicit a mood. Um, if that's not the case, then we're eliciting a response with these drugs, but it's not the response we want. And so with the antidepressants that are on board, ketamine infusion, when given according to the protocols that are out there intravenously, there's no potential for dependency. It goes in within two to four hours, it's out of the system, and there's no need for a wean-off. There's no potential for addiction or, or dependency developing, and it's physiologically passive enough to give to a child. In fact, ketamine is our primary anesthetic for children six months and older. It's, it's our go-to because it's so safe and, it's so, and it preserves the vital functions. And so, but the problem is with antidepressants, that's not the case. They have powerful dependencies that develop. They need very cautious wean-offs. And if you don't wean them slowly enough, or even when you do, you're going to experience some very troubling side effects as you come down. Now, that's, I tell people too all the time, is like every time you drop your medication dose, you're going to feel like you fell off a cliff. That doesn't mean that you did fall off a cliff. It doesn't mean that that's what your baseline is without your medication. You're in withdrawal. And we have to get to the other side of that withdrawal to see what your baseline is without the medication. And so, especially while they're going through this process, whether it be ketamine infusion, TMS, or some combination of the two, through the stabilization period, we go through, we do a period of time where we do anywhere, usually around six infusions. There is some variability for what we're treating and who we're treating, but we usually do a series of six infusions over two to three weeks. That being said, during that time, we don't want them to make any medication changes. We don't want them to make any big lifestyle changes. I tell my patients, I says, you, you are the scientist and the science experiment. You're the only one that can interpret the data. Tell us how you feel. And we don't want too many variables at play. So we talked a little bit about the ketamine infusion protocol. What about the TMS protocol? What does the TMS treatment actually look like? And are there more than one protocols? Is there anything new there? Absolutely. There's some very exciting things on the horizon. TMS is kind of the next evolution. It's, it stimulates a very similar neuronal regrowth. And what it lacks in global optimization, like with ketamine, it makes up for in the ability to target. Now, as the ability to target improves, like so right now, the best way to target, the ideal is with functional MRI, a functional MRI and then a machine that interprets that. The problem is, is functional MRIs are a special type of MRI that has the capability. Like so in Chattanooga, we don't have one, not in the whole city. The closest one to us is in Atlanta, I think, at Dr. Amen's clinic. And it's expensive to get the functional MRI and all of those things. So the next best way is three-dimensional mapping. So TMS, it's all about the targeting. So three-dimensional mapping, it allows you to use the patient's individual anatomy to target the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And as we get better imaging, more accurate imaging, we're going to, and more individualized to where we're actually able to target the lesions in the person's brain that are specific to them. 
we're able to look in someone's brain and say, this area is a problem for you. Say, what if it's not in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex? What if it's in the temporal lobe? What if it's in the occipital lobe? Or what if it's back here? What if it's causing migraines, not depression? What if it's perception of all things, pain and mood? And it's all how the brain is communicating. And so we potentially are able to address how we optimize, how we perceive all things, even with certain types of chronic pain disorders. And so as we're able to target better, we're going to see TMS improve. The current standard with TMS, the classic, say, for major depressive disorder is one, it's one aggressive treatment per day for five days a week for six weeks with, and some people include in that three-week wean-off of where they do like six treatments over a three-week period just to kind of wean it back. In psychiatry, we're used to weaning things. And so I think that's why that was included. Is that the SAINT protocol? That's No, that's the classic TMS protocol. That's like what we used to, like that's what most places that do TMS do. One treatment a day, you can treat many, many patients a day. The S&T protocol, the Stanford Neuromodulation Therapy. So imagine that with the classic TMS process, we did one treatment at 100% once a day. And with that treatment at 100%, there comes risks of you know, scalp irritation, headache, and potentially the most severe, I think, the issue that we can possibly see is a seizure. I've never seen it, but I've heard of it happening at that higher intensity. But what Stanford did is they you know, were like, we need to get more gains in a single day. So Stanford came up with a, a 10 session per day protocol, and they decrease the intensity of the treatment to minimize potential for seizure or discomfort or headache. And the patient's able to do more in a shorter amount of time. And so they'll do 10 sessions a day for five consecutive days. Now, this does require the specialized targeting. We've done this, I think, two dozen times since we first learned of it and decided to implement the process. It's less profitable, but the patient remission that we're seeing with it is unparalleled. We're seeing it's about 90% of patients report a complete remission of depressive symptoms at the end of the five-day period. Now, the way we incorporate ketamine into that process is usually at the end of day one and at the end of day five, we do a ketamine booster at the end of those days to elicit that global response. And so they'll get two ketamine sessions as part of their S&T process. We don't do them at the same time. That'd be a lot of stimulation while receiving a ketamine treatment. Mm -hmm. And stimulation with anesthesia can lead to pretty, can be very upsetting. Mm -hmm. And so we try to avoid that where possible. So in preparation for this interview, I tried to find studies and research about the combination of ketamine with TMS. And I actually didn't find anything out there. Mm -mm. So are there any data that you can point us to. And also, I'm curious if you're collecting data that could later be published. We collect data, we compile, we have very detailed charting, but it's something that we're actually working with a local LCSW who has a history of working with research. We are trying to figure out and create a study that would work well in this field. This is, this is a new area And I think that's something that gives us a lot of license, but it also, it's somewhere we have to exercise caution. Understanding that how these therapies complement each other is the part that's required of that is understanding how each one works independently. And so looking at ketamine and the idea that these two things would complement each other makes sense because I understand what ketamine does and I understand what transcranial magnetic stimulation does. We have these two pieces 
naturally seem to fit together. And from what we've seen with our practice, it does. It does very well. But as far as the research out there, very few research studies include multiple variables. My goal for the patient is not research. My goal for the patient is remission. And we use that word remission quite a bit, and I'll address that in a second. But remission means that not that everything's perfect. It means that the disease is no longer holding them back. It means what they're struggling with, their mood disorder, their depression, their inability to feel, it is, it, it, it's no longer there. What we give people is not something they didn't have before. It's like a clearing. We clear away the path, but they still have to take every single step on their own. What you're doing is cutting edge. What other treatments are you excited about? What other frontier mental health technologies are you interested in learning more and maybe one day incorporate into your practice? Well, the idea of a psychoplastogen. Psychoplastogens have been around for a long time, and we've only barely scratched the surface of our understanding of them. So while ketamine is not a psychedelic, it oftentimes gets lumped into that. But I really like the term psychoplastogen because it genuinely fits the medical terminology. From a psychedelic perspective, I'm really interested to see what we're able to accomplish with specifically what they're talking about with MDMA and PTSD. That is uh, that has shown some significant promise. There is a lot of corruption in, in studies. Having been somebody who's participated in several research studies, the studies that are supposed to be double blind, which means that the provider and the patient don't know who's the control and who's the actual experiment. I can collect data, but I can't do the research. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Like I can't be the I can't be the one that interprets the data because I'm inherently biased. I love what we do. I think what we do is the greatest thing in the world, and therefore I can't interpret the data because that will be reflected in my interpretation. And so we have to have an independent third party. So like we do collect data, we submit data, we our data is shared among different groups that are out there, different research groups, but they're disconnected from me. So it's important that I'm not the one actually interpreting the data, but that's not the case with everybody. Not everybody has shares that ethical limitation when they do research. And so what we see with like a lot of the psilocybin studies, specifically in the case of microdosing versus macrodosing, I am excited to see if there's anything, if there ever is irrefutable, reproducible results with these. But the problem is, is that so many variables affect outcomes. And the, the primary variable changes each time you do a treatment, which is the patient. What's therapeutic to one is not necessarily therapeutic to another. You know, you could be leading somebody into their therapeutic goals, or you could be re-traumatizing the patient. And we don't know until we get there. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so we have to be very cautious with these guided stimulations. Yes. Well, that is what is also exciting about the psychedelic ecosystem and industry. Obviously, it's the healing potential of some of these uh, classic psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, and any other tryptamine. But at the same time, what's exciting is the novel chemical entities that could be developed in the future where, as you said, it may have a shorter duration time. It may have something that basically stops the trip when needed. And also this idea of psychoplastogens, which we're also very lucky that we have partnered with David Olson at UC Davis. He's the one that coined this term psychoplastogens and he co-founded a company called Delix that we're lucky to support as well. So so yes, very excited about this idea of psychedelics 2.0 or 3.0 or, or just overall thinking about what are the limitations of the existing molecules and how we can improve them by doing real good science. 
Exactly. Real good science. That's exactly it. It's will we be using these classic psychedelics? Honestly, my belief is that it's going to be something new based off of these older psychedelics. These are the pathway to the next level. Like you said, psychedelic 2.0 or 3.0 or however you want to look at it. <laughs> it's, it's an exciting field to be in. Controllability, giving patient, but giving the patients the options to be able to change the brain's baseline. Because if stimulating BDNF is the goal, that's what the goal of all of this is. Working through things, that's a different process. Like we see with the actual psychedelic-assisted therapies, that's something very different than what I've described today. It looks at different areas and the science is subjective because the individuals change. And that's where we struggle. It's like, like I said, what's therapeutic to one? is not necessarily therapy to another, but the neat thing about this field is that it doesn't have to be something the patient is doing. That this is something, with, like with ketamine infusion therapy or with transcranial magnetic stimulation, one of the things I like to encourage my patients is that the neuroregenerative response occurs because I'm giving you the anesthetic. It's not something you're doing. It's something I'm doing to you. This is a treatment, meaning that they don't, they can't really make it work better. They can't really make it work less. That the neuroregenerative response occurs, they get the neuroregenerative benefit, and they start to feel things in a better way. They can't mess it up. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge pressure to take off of patients. I promise. And because of the expense, because of the time, because of everything that goes into this, they're so scared that they're going to waste their opportunity. And they need to remember, and that's something that we should be preaching very loudly, is that this isn't something you can screw up. But it's also not lightning from heaven. It might feel that way because even a small positive change when you are stuck in this negative space can feel massive. And we see that all the time. But I also show them that this wasn't a huge change. It was just the first change you've seen in years. And that makes it huge. And that's, that's okay. And feel that. Enjoy that. Wrap yourself around that. But keeping your eye on the prize that, that what we're working for is not feeling good in the room, not having a realization there, but it's actually being out in the world and being able to participate. That's the piece that we're working for. What is the cost of the treatment? Well, the cost is actually, it's, that's different depending on where you are in the country. Here in Chattanooga, the cheapest infusion we do is our general mood infusion for mood disorders. It is $3.95 per infusion. And we usually do a series of six infusions. And so the patient's commitment there would be about $23.70. And then we have processes to offset that cost. We have scholarship programs for first responders and veterans, and as most places do, because we find that our PTSD in particular responds beautifully to this. And PTSD plagues our first responders, specifically like a complex PTSD is what we seem to see with a lot of our first responders just because of the nature of their job. And so we like to make that available at a little cheaper price for them. And so typically you're looking anywhere from usually $350 to $500 per treatment. If you go out towards California, I think you're looking between $700 and $900, potentially $1,000 a treatment because of everything's more expensive out there. But down here in Tennessee where we are, we're about the average. We're not the cheapest, but we're not the most expensive. What about TMS? TMS therapy, you'll see anywhere from $90 a session to $150 a session. I've seen as high as $500 per session. That's kind of ridiculous on our side of things. So like our S&T protocol is about $90 per session. It works out to be $4,900 is what we end up doing for our Stanford neuromodulation treatment. And that's, they essentially get their, they get the whole back of our office to themselves for the week. It's the whole TMS machine is theirs. And so it, while it still, still is a lot of money, it's compared to what's out there. Most places charge around anywhere from four to $10,000, depending on where you go. The ketamine plus 
TMS therapy, that's something like 7,300. Well, we actually, with our S&T process, we don't charge for the two ketamine boosters. So it's something that we include should the patient choose, should they be something they're comfortable with. Not every, I mean, not everybody is, but everybody has wanted it so far. I've only had the one that didn't utilize it. But we don't charge extra for that because it complements the process. Essentially, it's good for the patient and it's good for us because it makes us look better when they do well. Yes, these numbers sound expensive for a lot of people, but also if the potential and, and the rate of remission is so high and you look at it from what is the daily cost of the treatment, then we're talking about something like 19 to $13 a day, right? If we assume that, that at least people come back once a year or even less often. And so what it's interesting about some of these frontier mental health treatments you could lamp psychedelics there, you could lamp ketamine infusion therapy, even or or TMS. What's interesting is that maybe in the in the absolute cost it sounds like a lot, but then when you start thinking what's the alternative and what is the cost per day, the equation changes. Mm-hmm. So the Stanford neuromodulation treatment, this is something that insurance is getting on board with. The reason it hasn't yet is not the same reason ketamine hasn't. Ketamine's been around for too long. It's an old drug, and so it's been FDA approved for for decades as an anesthetic analgesic. And so there's no money to be made, and so no one's going to pay to send it back to the FDA as an antidepressant. But with S&T, this is brand new. It's a new way of using the technology that's here. So this is something I imagine in the next year or so is going to include insurance reimbursement. Now it'll be difficult just like getting reimbursed for current classic TMS. Classic TMS is covered by insurance, but getting reimbursement for it is is pulling teeth. It's They make sure that you've done everything else imaginable before you do this, which is kind of foolish. It just drags things out. Like if you haven't tried every single drug and every single, so many drugs in each class, then we have a real struggle getting insurance to reimburse. And then patients get frustrated because it's a slow, long process. Insurance is a benefit, but it's also holds up progress as well. So our process here, it's in-house financing. There's no approval process with our in-house financing. It's Literally every single person that wants to utilize it can. There's no pre-approval. There's no credit checks. There's no compounded interest. It's just an agreement to pay. And then we spread the treatment out, usually around 12 months to offset the bigger expense. To make this accessible, people need to be able to access this. And the people that struggle the most have the least. And so there shouldn't be a barrier between them and this treatment because of ability to pay. And so that's kind of where we stand, that that's our inner socialist over here. I believe that if we, if we take care of everybody, we all do better. And our community gets better as we take care of our community. So that's my personal view of things. And since I own this place, that's what we do. Not everybody functions that way. A lot of people use this as a side gig to make extra money. In those cases, you're not going to find the flexibility there. But the neat thing about this is that no matter what you have near you, whether it be a clinic like mine or the side gig, it's the treatments, they work. When they're given intravenously, you get the best response. It's intranasal and oral. Oral's functionally a placebo. Unfortunately, we found that out to be with multiple studies. Intranasal, you can get some minimal BDNF stimulation, but it is very minimal. It's all bioavailability. It's Bioavailability is how much of, you know, through different routes of administration, whether it be in a vein or in a shot or up the nose or under the tongue, as like in with the trochies, you get the sedation. You get the dissociative effects of the anesthetic, but you don't get enough to trigger 
the protein response that actually causes lasting antidepressant effect. You essentially are using ketamine like a Xanax for immediate momentary relief. It's a sedative. And then and it comes with other issues with self-administration, but that may be a whole nother conversation. But what we find with the intravenous administration, if you can find someone that does this intravenous at the appropriate dosing, it's really hard to mess it up. Whether they do it, in a, whether it's a comfortable, beautiful experience or whether it's stressful because it's loud, a loud environment or, or whatever, whatever the environment is, you're going to get the neuroregenerative benefit. There is going to be a physiologic change that occurs in the brain. It's, it's something that we can guarantee. That's the only thing we can guarantee. What you do with it, that's where that's what really makes the difference in the long run. That's where, you know, what happens after the treatment once you're on the rebuild, when you're rebuilding your world. Sounds fantastic. Charles, thank you so much for spending some time chatting with me and helping me think through these therapies. I'm excited about TMS and ketamine being widely used in more places and offer more safe and effective treatments for patients that are suffering with depression, anxiety, OCD. And at the same time, I'm going to be thinking about this idea of preventive medicine that you mentioned as well. And I know that's even more far in the future but I, I think you planted a seed there for all of us in terms of what it looks like if all of us accept that there's the potential of brain optimization. Yeah, brain optimization is what it's about. These are diseases. The way we avoid diseases, self-care. Preventative therapies keep us all healthy. Thank you for what you do. You bringing awareness out there, putting this out there, is this is why this is going to work. This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic startups. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at Business Trip FM. And if you're building a company in psychedelics, hit us up. My email is greg at businesstrip.fm. I'm Greg Kubin, and this episode was hosted by Matthias Serebrinsky. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank, Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. I like talking to people who hear what I'm saying. Who hear what I'm saying. I had this exact same conversation with a physician I treated. I was explaining this, explaining this kind of the same way I'm explaining it to you, to you, to you, to you. And he looked at me and he said, "So basically, everybody should do this, right?" Right. Right. And I said, "At a certain age, probably." probably. At a certain-